What is up, my friends? Welcome to Rebel and Create's Fatherhood Field Notes podcast, where I interview incredible fathers gaining wisdom from their stories for you and I to grow in our craft. I'm your guide, Ned Shout, father to five kiddos, currently ages 10 to 17, and husband to my rad wife, Sarah, working on our 20th year of marriage. So yep, I'm in the thick of it, and I'm working daily to rebel against the low expectations for fathers and create a world where fathers know who they are as they show up for their families. You and I have the greatest opportunity to impact our world through the way we embrace our fatherhood role. This episode is brought to you by The Adventure of Fatherhood, helping men discover their powerful fatherhood role and build their fatherhood skills. The role of the father is to serve, guide, provide, protect, and of course, find joy and have fun in the messiness of it all. Today's guest is my friend Everett Lebhurst. We talk bedtime routine, how to apologize, and the difference between being there with the family and being present. Enjoy meeting my friend Everett. Everett, welcome to Fatherhood Field Notes. How are you today? I'm doing well, Ned. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I know we've chatted about this for a little over a year, so it's great to have you on to talk fatherhood. You know, I got to say, man, I admire everything that you do because I know you're a multifaceted guy. You're in the same business as I am to some degree, and you've got one more kid than I do, so yeah, produce <laughs> me there. But yeah, I'm excited to talk. Yeah, fatherhood is one of the most important things we'll do. But I find myself constantly having to remind myself that my purpose, my identity, really my core values are tied to being a father in my home. But when you're running a business, sometimes it's hard. You get distracted because there's just so much on your shoulders. And it could be really any career. What are some ways that you have found to continue to make fatherhood, marriage, family, a priority over running your business? Yeah. I mean, I think it just comes down to trust in the people you work with. One of the things I do most is let the people that I hire do their jobs and coach them and guide them and promote them as needed, but really continue to put responsibilities on them and hire next to them, above them, below them, anyone that really can help support the business so that my day ends when the workday's over and I get to go back home and be focused on the family. Do you find yourself to be a controlling person? No, not at all. If I were to look at myself and say, where do I have a hard time letting go? It's kind of in anything that surrounds or is around organizing, organizing a trip or organizing the day with mm. the family. Like I often have a hard time taking a back seat there. But fortunately, my wife and I are almost on the same page constantly with regard to logistics and how can we do things in the most efficient way. So I, I learned that early about her in our relationship, which made the future less stressful in my eyes back then. I've always been kind of looking years and years ahead. But because her and I are on the same page a lot there, I actually don't need to worry about that. And I can take a back seat. Okay, so two questions on this. And then I'll start from the beginning of my questions. If you're about organizing the day and you have a plan for the day, because this is something I'm struggling with right now or trying to retrain myself. When things don't go to plan, okay, you set an expectation, this is how the day is going to go. When it falls apart or changes, how do you respond when you're happy with how you respond? Well, I can tell you what, I have relaxed a ton, a ton since kids came into the picture. Um, oh, really? Oh, yeah. I think one of the best attributes of having children is the patience that comes along mm. in yourself from a character standpoint. So when things do change, what I like most about my positive responses is I just say, all right, let's go with it. More often than not, when things change, it's mostly like something cancels. And because I feel like every minute of every day is packed from Monday to Friday, 
If something cancels, I'm usually excited uh, more than anything. <laughs> yeah, so it's your perspective of it, right? So your perspective of it is instead of it didn't work out, it just gave you some time, gave you some time exactly. back maybe. Okay. Yeah, time, time at home. And then second question based on what you had said as we first started talking is you said you look to the future. Having that balance of visionary looking to the future, how do you make sure that you're present in today when you are that visionary type of person? One of the things I try most with and struggle perhaps the most with is just leaving my phone away from myself during the weekend and Mm. after hours. It's been helpful with the smartwatch because you don't get emails and stuff on that. So Mostly it's trying to just be with the kids during the time that you have with them. I'm the morning guy. I get up every morning. I make the breakfast. I spend all morning with the kids until they get off to school. Nice. And I think spending that time allows me to feel a little bit more flexible kind of later in the day, knowing that I've gotten a lot of really good quality time with them in the morning. So I might, you know, not get home half hour, an hour later here and there, and I'll feel okay with that because I've got a lot of time with the kids during the morning. And that gives me some extra time to work out play tennis, have after-hour phone calls that you wouldn't normally have time for during the day. Then when I am home, put it all aside and hopefully try to focus on the kids. I mean, once you're there, as soon as you walk in, Ned, you know better than I. I mean, I've got four kids, right? And they're Mm -hmm. young right now from one to eight. And that's a lot of bodies coming at you when you get home. Oh, the best feeling, man. It's the best. It's the best. And you pick them up, you hug them. They want to show you everything that they've done on the day. I mean, it's not necessarily that I have to even put the phone down. It just doesn't get picked up. My hands aren't free. So, yeah, yeah, love it. I love that, you know, and it's like a full time job from five o'clock until the last one's asleep, which is about eight fifteen. Yeah, I miss those days. My kids are now a little older, so they're going to bed at 10, 1030. I'm trying to get myself in bed at 930, 945. It's difficult. All right, I'm going to kick us back to the beginning here. So people know who I'm talking to. Everett, how old do you find yourself today? <laughs> well, I just officially got over the hill. So I am now a young 40. Yes. Uh, happy birthday. Welcome to your 40s, bro. Yeah, thank you. I feel like I've hit all my goals up to this point. So I'm excited to start the new decade. Heck yeah. Okay. So to say I feel like I hit my goals, what are three goals? Only one can be business related. You said that with confidence. I hit my goals. I feel good going into my 40s. What are a couple of things? that give you that peace to say that? Okay, so I think the first goal is to be done and satisfied with the size of the family that I have. (laughs) Okay, good. Uh, (laughs) Four kids? Yeah, I got married when I was 30. So I gave us 10 years to see, you know, and I've always wanted four kids. My wife wanted two. She gave me three and we ended up with four. Nice. (laughs) And uh, that's like the number one. We've put the new baby chapter beyond us. And now we get to really just focus on that. So like goal number one is contentment with the size Mm. of the family and like how we proceed forward. And I think that that theme carries through to one of my next goals, which is one of my long term goals is always to have a company that grew without me having to be the person that necessarily grows it and operates and manages it. And I've got that in one of my businesses and I'm involved enough to continue growing it in a different way through acquisitions, less so than like having to produce and sell on the day to day and deal with the time commitment that that comes with. Right. Yeah. So I have a nice business asset that provides financial flexibility for myself while also it's exciting for me because I get to see everyone in it also growing, growing their families, buying homes. Mm -hmm. making more money. And I like to see that I created that. 
So yeah. that took 20 years. Yeah. Well, 18. That doesn't happen overnight. The third thing is having an organization at home that allows my wife and I to live the lifestyle we want to live. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? My wife runs a wonderful home. She is a full-time mom. She gets to focus on making sure the kids are growing as little children, but we have a lot of support. We have an au pair that we hired and loves our family and we love her and she's been with us for several years. And so that's been great. And her mother-in-law lives with us as well. And now my mother-in-law, my wife's mother lives with us as well. So we have a lot of helping hands. I think the thing that I would call a goal was to set that up because we went through a lot of iterations before we found the right mm-hmm. thing to help with the family. And now my wife and I have a little bit more flexibility to spend some time to ourselves here and there on more date nights than, than I think I would have ever imagined. Early on having kids, yeah. you just find that time disappearing. But now we do have that time. So setting up that infrastructure at home. Dude, those are good goals, man. And if we have time at the end, I might come back to the au pair piece because that was something that was foreign to me. Didn't even know, consider, think about that. So maybe if we get chance. We'll talk about that. So dude, beautiful. I mean, how incredible to jump into your forties and you have this foundation to work from. You're excited to be in this new decade, which is incredible. How many years you've been married? Nine going on 10. Okay. You said that you got married at 30 and you guys got to work four kids in the last 10 years. Okay. And then you kind of talked about what you do. You're in the insurance employee benefits world. Where does your family reside? Where do you guys live? We're in uh, Alamo, California, down south of Walnut Creek. It's a little tiny town, but a great family community. Nice. And then what's the breakdown of the kids? Four kids, girls and boys? I got three daughters, eight, six, and four, and a young boy who's about 20 months. Yes. Oh, I love it. So I got four girls and one boy, and what an incredible opportunity to be a dad to daughters, especially, but thank God we both got that one boy in there, right? So that feels good. If you don't mind me asking, where does the boy fall in your... Yeah. So I have a 16-year-old daughter, a 14-year-old daughter, twins that are 13. They were a big surprise, right? Violet was only four months old when Sarah got pregnant with the twins. And so Brody's one of the twins and they're 13. Yeah. And then we're like, let's have one more because we need to have a brother for our son. And we had a fourth girl and that's Stella and she's 10. All right, Everett, when you think about fatherhood, Okay. You said you knew you wanted to have four. You were at a good age, 30 years old, coming into fatherhood. When do you feel like you embraced fatherhood? When did it really hit you that this mattered deeply? Is it from being a child you knew or in getting married you knew? What point did you really embrace fatherhood? You know, it's a great question, Ned. And I can tell you almost exactly when I embraced it. And that Mm -hmm. was when I was old enough to appreciate and understand how much time my dad had with us growing up. And you don't fully appreciate it or understand it until you start to meet people outside of your childhood bubble and you start to hear their stories. And I have a great role model in my dad and a wonderful role model in my parents from a marriage standpoint. So I'm fortunate to be part of that and be blessed with the lucky sperm club, I suppose. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you don't you don't get to pick or choose who your parents are. But I remember my dad would be there to coach the teams and he was around a lot. And I realized that when I was 17, junior or senior in high school. And I said, you know, I want to have a business that gives me as much time with my family as my dad had with us. Wow. When I talked really about looking ahead, that was my North Star. And I grew up on a ranch that was operated by my mom's side of the family. And she worked on the ranch. And so she was always around. And it just made it nice. And I was like, God, this was a great lifestyle. I've got wonderful relationships with my siblings. 
wonderful relationships with my parents. My dad and mom have 16 grandchildren, four of which are mine. Wow. And you know, we all get along great. And so my best, I think, gift to my parents would be to try to keep that philosophy and that family kind yes. of going. That's when I embraced fatherhood. And I can tell you, like when I was dating around in my you know 20s, I was very much looking at who was going to be a good partner to help support this vision that I had. Yeah. So that's really interesting. So you grew up with a big family. How many siblings do you have? I have two older sisters and a younger brother. Okay. So there's four. And then they've each had slew of kids as well to give your parents 16 grandkids. Question for you is interesting that you didn't get married till 30. So at 17, you knew this is important to me, dated whatever in twenties. I mean, a whole decade. Was there a purpose? Was it just not the right timing? Didn't meet the right person? What led you to wait till you were 30 to get married to then start that phase or chapter of your life? Yeah. So to frame it a little bit more. So just so you know, my wife and I met when I was 27. So as soon as I met her, I mean, I knew pretty quickly, like I was like, Mm. our values are aligned. We get along great. We think a lot alike. And a lot of the things that I would call like annoyances and struggles that come along with maybe different perspectives on things weren't totally there. And so it was almost like from the beginning, we were going together in this path. I pretty much, I mean, I'd say within a couple months, my plan was to maintain this relationship to a point where Mm -hmm. like I'm certain and then pop the question. And that ended up being when I was 29, married when I was 30. And so we were together just about two and a half years, maybe a little bit less before I got engaged to her. So I think the question was, what caused me to wait that long? Yeah, kind of. I mean, as you frame it, it's like you didn't really wait that long. So you meet her at 27, put a couple years into investing in this, and then 30 is when you get married. So it's really not like you waited that long. But I mean, from 17 to 27, you know, it is 10 years. You came from a family that was a big family. So clearly that was kind of like important. It was just more of a curiosity. You know, was it because your North Star was business or was it just waiting for the right person? No, it was probably more just the fact that I was a little bit of a late bloomer, as you'd say. So I really didn't even start dating until I was 20 or 21. You know, me being, I'm more of an observer. If I go to a party, I'm more of the guy that's observing. If I meet a bunch of new people, I'm more observing and then I kind of get engaged. And so I think that for me to feel confident, I had to have an understanding of what I liked and what I felt would be a good partner in marriage. Mm-hmm. And that just takes time. You know, you, you have to go out there and put yourself out there and see what comes back. And some people get lucky and right away and they find their partner that lasts forever. And I can't say that it took me very long either, about four or five years. Yeah, that's good. All right. So, Thinking about your life, your 20s, and then you jump into your 30s, you're married, right away you're having kids. When you think about having kids, what have you learned about yourself? So, you know, all four of your kids are half you in a sense, right? They are half your image. There's things that you see in them that you probably love. And then there's things that you see in them that you may be like, man, I struggle with that as well. So when you see yourself and your kids, what's something you've learned about yourself? I would say that fortunately, I've learned that I have gears that I can tap into from an energy standpoint that I would have never thought. My ability to grab Z's, you know, naps is uncanny. (laughs) So there's more to what I've learned about myself from like a patient standpoint and kind of how I approach teaching the kids that I'll get into. But like, first and foremost, I had no idea that I could pretty much turn off my brain and fall asleep at any given moment, and then just wake up and be ready to go. That was interesting. But as far as teaching the kids, 
I think my training in the professional world has helped a lot with the kids. Because mm-hmm. in the professional world, my whole thing is like, if you're going to come to me with issues, come to me with solution-based responses. That way, you can come up to me with the solution, and I'll either guide you, but ultimately, I want you thinking enough in advance to like solve the problem yourself. I like that. Yeah. And for kids, sometimes you do have to be like, no, you do this. This is the right thing to do. But what I tend to find myself doing more than that is trying to guide them to making the right decision, letting them make the wrong decision if I feel like it's not going to harm them. For instance, you want to go on a walk with me in high heels? Okay, come on and walk with me in high heels. You're never going to want to wear those again. <laughs> so instead of fighting them on that, just let them do it. Yeah, that's exactly right, Ned. So, so how in the moment do you... Okay, so I mean, really break this down. You got four kids. We're not talking about teenagers. We're talking about a one-year-old to an eight-year-old. And then we're talking about four kids at any given moment, somebody's having a question or a breakdown or needs something or whatever. How do you in the moment have the patience when your kid walks out with high heels to go, this isn't okay to let them stumble. And I realize this kid's screaming, this kid spilled something, and I'm not going to take out the energy suck from them on what's happening with you. Yeah, I mean, what a great question. And clearly, Posed from someone with experience. <laughs> All those things are always happening, right? So first and foremost, I know that once the kids are in the car, whatever happened in the house will get tidied up because mm. it's like a vacation every time the kids get out of the home and understand like I've got the four kids, a wife, my au pair and my mother-in-law there. So there's eight people in the house. So if something falls over or spills, I fortunately can ignore that because mm-hmm. I know it'll get picked up. Or if the kid's old enough to like understand that they need to clean it up, you know, we, we do pause and make that so. But here's what I do. It will drive you crazy if you try to get every kid to put on what they're supposed to put on, look like they're supposed to look, and get out of the house in an organized way where everyone's not pissed off at each other, for lack of a better word, or like yeah. a lot of stress. So for me, I'll tell you what, Ned, you only have to do this once, maybe twice. You say, I am getting in the car at eight o'clock. You need to have clothes on, shoes on, and you need to have gone to the bathroom. And then you leave at eight o'clock. <laughs> and you could do it. Have as you a left tech. anyone? Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> That's what you have to do once. You do it once. And like we go to church every Sunday, and I say, look, cars leaving at nine o'clock. And I have left kids behind, but never alone, obviously. But I'll tell my wife, like, hey, stay home. I'm going to. They didn't make it. And that's a teaching moment. And then you come Here's back. Here's the real question. Have you ever left your wife? <laughs> not at 902. At 902. No, I have not. I have not. Okay. But I have definitely like rolled the car back. <laughs> Maybe given a little tap on the horn. Oh, um, the horn tap. Oof. Balls. Yeah. Up. But I could, t- I could tell you this, like with regard to the kids, there's this portable potty that mm. can unfold. It's in a bag. It has these little baggies. That's one of the saving graces that I've had. I just bought them for every car. Oh, and just keep it in the car. Keep it in the car. They can use it in the back seat or in the trunk of the car. Not the, Most of my cars are yeah, yeah. people movers, so there's like big trunks, right? But it allows you to not have to worry too much about them all going to the bathroom before you leave. I mean, it's chaos, as you know. I say when I'm leaving, I hope you show up with everything. And if you don't, you're going to remember next time to remember to wear shoes or remember not to wear high heels. Remember to bring your coat. So is there also an expectation for like, if they walk out of the house with high heels, you know, your four-year-old daughter to go to church, you sending them back in? Or is it already a lot of clarity that you don't wear this to church? Well, in that case, I'd usually run in and grab another pair of tennis shoes. Yeah, yeah, and then. 
change when we get to church. Yeah. The four-year-old, they're not going to learn as quickly as the seven or eight. There's some space there. But the real gold nugget here is that portable toilet in the car. Like, (laughs) you know, I think the portable toilet in the car is just an acknowledgement that things are not going to go perfectly every time. If you think that you're going to be frustrated with that, it seems like you're fairly grounded in the understanding of that and grounded in yourself. So talk to me, how do you keep yourself grounded and not let the energy rise in you? Because what I find is if I lose my cool, then it heightens my wife and then it heightens the way she's talking and treating the kids. Like it's just this trickle down effect. So how do you keep yourself grounded and not lose your cool, I guess? Yeah. First of all, I lose my cool, right? (laughs) Okay. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I'll be the first to admit, but it gets less and less and less over time, at least during this stage in life. The kids are pretty obedient. They're not doing things that are too scary all the time. But how do I keep my cool? Man, I think it really just comes down to rest. And I'll tell you, like the person that I emulate the most is my wife, because my wife is she's set up such a nice expectation from the children's standpoint that if the child comes out upset, we kind of have a rule. You're not allowed to cry in the kitchen. No crying in the kitchen, no whining in the kitchen. That's the family hangout. That's where we spend all of our time. Okay. And if you are upset, you are not in trouble. If you are crying, you are not in trouble. This is is something we say all the time. But you can choose to be out here and be happy or pout in your room and give them a few minutes to decide or a few seconds, really, because they had never really made the decision. (laughs) And you take them into their room and just say, look, you're not in trouble. This is where you come to gather yourself. And then when you're ready, come on out. If not, I'll be back in five or 10 minutes and we'll check on you. I like that a lot. Yeah. And that way, if the other kids see that someone gets removed from the kitchen because they're in a bad mood or being too loud or they're upsetting other children, then typically morale stays high in the kitchen. Mm, doesn't bring the rest of the group down. Yeah. And kids, everyone's hungry to some degree, sometimes they're in the kitchen. So you got to kind of mitigate and decide when to do that and when not to. You got to realize, do you really just need a snack or are you in a bad mood? Yeah, that's good. Really good. All right. So the podcast is Fatherhood Field Notes. We're already doing it. You're opening up your field notes, sharing nuggets with us. The mantra behind it is rebel and create. And the idea is... I'm rebelling against the status quo of what fatherhood is, or I'm rebelling against being on my cell phone at dinner time, so that I can then create X, Y, or Z. So when you think about that, what's something you're rebelling against? And then out of that rebellion, what do you hope to create? One thing that I rebel against is that a dad can handle kids, multiple kids at the same time. Like I have no issue taking all four kids somewhere. Yeah, I love Yeah, that. and handling it, taking them for the day. I completely blow up the schedule because in our house, the older three no longer nap. But when they did, I would kind of just skip that. Rebel against the schedule sometimes, but not too often because that does have its consequences. But I think from a societal standpoint, I just enjoy being with the kids. And I think the stigma is the dad's disconnected. The dad wants to watch sports and not be as present. And maybe even the joke is mostly incapable look at movies and all this kind of stuff. I don't agree with any of that stuff. None of that stuff really impacts me whatsoever. I just try to do what my dad did for us, which is have a great time, try to keep a good attitude throughout and have lots of experiences. Mm -hmm. All right. So that's clear, you know, creating this opportunity to have experiences with your kids. I love the quote, I enjoy being with my kids. Something that you had talked about in the pre-questionnaire which I really want to get into, especially, you know, I have daughters and your daughters are young, is starting the conversation with your daughters about what to expect. 
and what to look for in a man. And it seems like you're already starting to build a foundation with that. I mean, clearly you're the example. So no matter what you say, how you do it is going to really be a thing that sets up their success in that area. But talk to me a little bit about what it is that you're teaching your daughters, even at a young age. Ned, I would love to pick your brain also later, because I know I can probably interview you just as long as you interview me. And I'm very much looking forward to reading your book because you're maybe like five to eight years ahead of me on the kids. So I'm going to be preaching to the choir to some degree here. But what am I teaching my daughters about what it's like to find a good guy or, you know, what do you look for in a relationship? What's interesting is they are asking these questions pretty early in life, mm-hmm. right? And if you ask them, they all have boyfriends. <laughs> the, 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 the boys have no idea, right? <laughs> but they're someone in their tennis class or someone in gymnastics or whatever. So it's almost impossible to avoid this for eternity, or at least until they're a little older. What I tend to do For instance, my oldest daughter and I watched one season of Survivor because a friend of mine was on it and actually won, which is a lot of fun. Nice. It was the Millennials versus Gen X season. And so we watch it and there's a showmance on there where Mm -hmm. two people on the same tribe like each other. And it happens in the very first episode. And my daughter says, oh, they're in love. I go, well, let's talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) They think that each other are cute because it takes a long time to develop love and relationships. And one of the things I've said over and over again, because I think that repetition is what drives memory and uh, character. I said, look, you need to spend enough time with someone to know how they act when they're tired, when they're hungry, when they travel, when they're sad, when they're upset and when they're stressed out Hmm. or challenged. And that's why you have to date for a long enough period to be there when these things happen. Because if you understand how people behave in those situations and you're cool with it and you feel like it's on the same page as you, like life's going to be a lot easier because there are flare ups left and right when it comes to how responses are handled because you're tired, mostly (laughs) because you're hungry at times. You know, you're stressed in some cases, a kid gets hurt or there's financial stress. There's all kinds of things that stress you out. My whole thing is get to know someone long enough to where you can understand how they behave in these certain types of moments that can really make or break relationships because that's when a lot of the wrong things are said. Mm. Okay, so I want to pause here. I have chills from you saying this, and I think dudes really need to hear this because dads, I think, struggle with knowing how to engage with their daughters in this area. And this is a beautiful way to do this list that you have. So I want to just really reiterate this. The media, and most of us aren't shutting Netflix off and not letting our kids watch Disney movies and whatever. Most of us are letting our kids watch shows. Everything has romance involved, such as Survivor, which is also wanting to capture us in the show. So they're having this showmance or whatever, so that we're then more engaged. But the reality is you don't fall in love because I think you're beautiful and there's something innate that makes me attracted to you physically, sexually, whatever. But media would say like, as soon as I am attracted to you, then it leads to these other things that are really down the road. But I love you saying, spend enough time with someone to understand how they respond when they're sick, when they travel, when they're stressed, when they're happy, when they're sad, when they're angry, when they're cornered, when there's financial stuff. And that comes from spending time and I think what an important thing to teach. And you, you know, great example of that. You met your wife at 27, dated for a couple of years. You were both able to come to this point where you understood each other. And there's always going to be corks. So it's not about finding yeah. 
perfect quote unquote person, but it's understanding how do they respond? What is their character? And I think if our daughters were to pay attention to that more, especially I have a 16 year old and high school boys are just dummies in most instances. But they're seeing this. So I'm walking alongside my 16-year-old as we've had a couple of dummies <laughs> enter the scene. Anyways, I just think what a great way to talk about it and to start teaching your daughter that at a young age. Watch how they respond in these situations. It's important. It is. Really and, important. And you have to, for some reason, I'm fortunate to almost look at everything through a comedy lens. I think almost mm. everything is hilarious to me. My first reaction tends to be one of like, I laugh and it didn't used to be. I think that that came with just experience. But yeah, great advice for a daughter. It's also great advice for a son. I don't know about you, but maybe it's my dad life middle age. I literally get excited when I'm going to bed thinking about coffee the next morning. Sort of makes me sound like a drug addict and I've become a bit snobby about it. I only like good fresh coffee. I also love supporting the kick-ass dad and I'm sort of cheap so the whole $50 bag doesn't really work for me. My go-to is Valiant Coffee. My friend Eric who is truly an amazing father, husband, and human and was on the Rebel and Create podcast. He roasts the most amazing coffee and gets it to my door within days of it being roasted all for a reasonable price go support eric and drink coffee that gets you excited to wake up in the morning head over to rebellandcreate.com forward slash coffee to get yours yeah so talk to me about the sun then what's the difference your son is obviously 20 months old so you guys aren't really having these conversations yet but as you think about him at 10, 15, 20, 25 coming to you. What does that conversation look like between you and him? <laughs> it's not too different from what my dad told me. You know, he always, okay. One of the things he always said was when it comes to going and finding a girl to date, he'd always say, start at the top and work your way down from who you're attracted to because you'll find you don't get that far down. <laughs> 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 and so I was like, really? So, cause you know, when you're young and any guy, if you, Everyone's attracted to different people, but if you're always a little nervous to talk to who you're most attracted to. So it's a lot easier to talk to someone who you're not as attracted to because there's no skin in the game. There's no pressure. So I was always, <laughs> I always put myself out there. I never let an opportunity go by it to some degree as I started to become more confident in my early 20s, at least to talk to someone. And so there's that. <laughs> But I would give the same exact advice. Put yourself in situations where you can understand how, how she would react or behave in these moments of higher stress, higher blood pressure moments to see yeah. how it's handled. I mean, I've seen some things that caused me to move on from relationships during that time. And I'm glad that I did. I think that to my dad's credit, I started at the top and I don't think I got very far down at all. In fact, I think I got the top. <laughs> so love it. Yeah. My dad and I had a great relationship going on. We played a lot of golf on Sundays. Sunday was fun day mm. with family and we'd go out and shoot nine holes and we're always very open with each other. So having that relationship is the one thing I could hope to have with my son, because it's almost like there's not just one conversation. It's an ongoing conversation where we kind of have a lot of fun with it, like my dad and I did. Yeah, that's really good. So we have a little bit more time here before I want to ask two final questions. And so since we're at kind of two different stages, you have the three, four, eight-year-old daughters. I have the 10, 13, 14, 16. 
I'd love just to ask each other a couple of questions around this as dudes are thinking about how to raise daughters, right? And you and I clearly very intentional fathers. So like dating, for example, we've told each of them, we don't do it based on your age. Like you could date at 16. We do it based on a maturity level. Now I would, yeah, I would kind of argue like, I just don't want you to date at all until you're like 20 where my wife, and that's not so much the like dad trying, it's just like, What's the point? I wasted a bunch of time dating in high school. It didn't really do anything for me. My wife's perspective, though, is I want them to have opportunity to stumble and fall to some level in our home, not when they're at college without us kind of overseeing this. So I do get that. So our 16-year-old thus far has had like a boyfriend for a month and then a boyfriend for like, I don't know, a couple of months, whatever. And so we were able to walk with her through that process. From your perspective, as your oldest being eight, and it's like really playful and sweet at the moment, but this transition is just, you know, four or five years out where the conversation will switch a little bit. What's your perspective on this side of it where you do have more control? Yeah. So, man, I rue the day that this starts to happen. (laughs) But my perspective is more along the lines of your perspective, which is delay, delay, (laughs) delay. Yeah, yeah. Because I think generally with, you know, only because it's been my own experience that like getting married a little later in life may have more advantages or better outcome from like a divorce rate. I don't know, actually, but I think you're a little bit more mature. You kind of know what you like. I've always said like you're a different person from 18 to 19, 19 to 20. 20 to 21 Mm -hmm. and 20 to 22. But then from 22 to 24, you're kind of like a different person. Then from 24 to 26 or 7, once you're 27, I think pretty much you are who you are. And you change a lot year to year. I could tell you I am a completely different person than when I was 18. I'm way dumber now than I was then. I was way more scared and shy. And now I think sometimes I do things that make me feel like I'm 18. But for that reason, I think hopefully start a little later is what my advice would be. I think my wife would be on the same page there. In fact, we haven't talked about that. That's a good question. Yeah. So that's great right there. So like, as we're thinking about this, I think for dad, sometimes the question doesn't arise until like you're in it, right? Like think of something your kid comes to you and is like, Hey dad, can I X, Y, or Z? And you're like, well, shoot, I have never even thought about that. So I'll get back to you versus, Hey, you know what? My kid's going to be thinking about or asking about a phone. 10 year olds ask for a phone all the time because her friends at school have one, but we've already had this conversation. 10 year olds don't have phones. So I think that point right there, if you're a dad with young girls right now, is to start having that conversation with your spouse and then even with your girls so that then when it comes up, there's already this set standard because the world, if you don't plan it, the world will dictate it for you. That's a great, uh, man, I appreciate that's a good nugget, Ned. As you were talking, I was thinking about how how could I make this comfortable for the kids? Because you don't want to make it uncomfortable. You don't want them to do something behind your back. Exactly. I think what it's I, a hard balance right there. Yeah. I think what I would say is invite who you like over. Invite who you mm. like to our events. Invite. And we always have people. I mean, our house is loaded with people. And I'm sure yours is as well. Growing up on this ranch, it was always a hot spot for everybody because it was like, off the beaten path and you could do whatever you wanted to out there. And people always came over. And what was interesting, a lot of early relationships started there. Now, again, I was a late bloomer. I missed all that. But friends of mine and friends (laughs) of my sisters, they would always start off their young, innocent relationships that they had in these group settings. And so what I would probably start to promote is have a group environment as you kind of lean into some of these relationships, maybe 
more so than like the one-on-one private stuff at an earlier age, early, mid, late high school. Maybe not so much late, yeah. but early to mid. Dig it. You know, my ex-business partner told me this because he was ahead of me. And his advice was, Ned, get a house with a pool. Make your house the place where all the kids want to be mm. so that then you're the one influencing all those kids. And like, man, Saturday night, we had 20 kids over at my house. Uh, there was like three other dads. And I mean, I had to shut it down. This was a dance party at like 11. I actually know my neighbors were pissed. But the point was like, all these kids are here spending time with us under our roof. And I think that that is critical and important. The one thing I'll just throw out there for dads listening who are like, man, I didn't have a sister. I don't know how to handle my daughters. I'm not even sure how to have these conversations. I think if the one thing that you can do that's going to set you up for success is tell your daughter you love her every day, tell her she's beautiful every day, and give her positive physical touch every single day so that there's zero lack of that in her life. And the success that you will have from just doing those three things are going to make her way less interested in what she's out there looking for. My daughters would tell you, I give every single day is the tickles, the cuddles, the love, but then also respecting, I'll just throw this out there too, because there's a shift in a couple of them. Like my 13 year old, she'll still kiss me on the lips. My 16 year old and respecting the point where that wasn't something that she wanted anymore, which I had to be okay with. You know what I mean? So, you know, it's funny you say that because there are moments where you're like, you get a little emotional as a father because that period in time has now left. And it's gone. And yeah. Like, gosh. Like, yeah. You know, I tell my four-year-old every day, stay four forever. Like, please. Yes, please. And some of it's pushed from my end. Some of it's pushed from her end. But yeah, you have to definitely be able to respect that. And yeah, positive affirmation, love. We tell each other we love each other every day. And I have my things that I do with each daughter. Bedtime mm-hmm. is an hour plus every day, every night for me. My four-year-old, what she want to do? She wants to open this book and play. I don't know if you have the book, which is like, what do people do? Or it's like some rabbit mm. driving a car and then it's driving to the beach. Anyway, it's a really busy book. And on each page, there's this little tiny Goldberg is what it's called, Goldbug. And she wants to play Find Goldbug. And there's 80 pages in this book. And she beats me oh, 70, 70 to 10 every night, every night. She won't go. Like, I want to play Goldbug. And I skip some pages every now and then as I'm flipping them. That's <laughs> long book. 80 a lot. I, I do that with her. That's what she likes. My six-year-old, we sing a song together. It's a Coldplay song. Mm. My eight-year-old, we always read right before bed. Mm. And they go to bed at different times and allows us to do that. And I think spending that little time... I like that. Yeah. Oh, man, I can tell you all about bedtime routines. <laughs> my kids have so much energy. And I think a lot of parents say that, and I can compare my kids to my nieces and nephews. My kids have so much energy, man. So break down a little bit of bedtime routine. I think that'd be helpful for dads, and then we'll wrap this up. Yeah, so... What are a couple of tips that you would give for the kid with a lot of energy on the bedtime routine? Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, no screens before bed. Like, that is a clear indicator. That's just a bad idea. What we do is our 8-year-old sleeps with our 4-year-old. And we put our four-year-old to bed at like 6.30, 6.45, 7. So she's asleep by the time my eight-year-old gets in there. That's key. Mm. Like You put them both in there, they'll stay up till midnight if you put them both in there at the same time. And then my six-year-old, because she goes to bed around the same time as my eight-year-old, she's actually in her own room because it's just easier. <laughs> it's easier because, again, they will just stay up and chat and do everything. And, you know, you pay the consequences for that over a multi-day period as like the number of sleep mm-hmm. hours reduces every night. So we just stagger it. That way, everybody's going to bed individually. Even that somewhere at the same time, they don't have anyone to talk to. And 
So it's easier yes. for us. And we've tried so hard to get them to just go to bed at the same time, but they just don't. They just stay awake. <laughs> so. Staggered bedtimes and then being in tune with what each one wants to do and having a routine with them and then no screens, whatever, 20, 30, 60 minutes before bed. Yeah. And, and also try to make the time in the room consistent so that it's not like, mm-hmm. I want another hug or I want some more time to glow my back. Or like, you just got to have a period where you just like, look, I did this, I did this, I did this. And now it's time to go to bed. I love you. I'll see you tomorrow. And you close the door and you got to walk out. I mean, otherwise you'll be there for hours. And so it's routine, same thing over and over again. When in doubt, just move their bedtime up like 30 minutes here and there because kids just get tired and they don't know that they're tired. And so every now and then they just need a little extra sleep and it'll get them back on track. I like it. I like it. All right. I just don't want to miss this because it really caught my eye. But in the Google form, I asked, is there any stories to touch on? And you said the best advice I can give. And it said, apologize mm. and forgive quickly. Okay. So a lot of times we talk about apologizing as dads, like, yeah, we screw up. We we mess up, we lose our cool, we got to apologize. But the forgive quickly, talk to me about that one because I think that's something we touch on less. And I know at least myself, and maybe it's just me, but when I read that, I'm like, dang, I can hold on to things for a little bit longer than I probably need to. So talk to me about forgiving quickly. Yeah, I'll tell you this. When we found a church that we like, this was one of the first lessons that came from that church with our pastor several years ago. I was like, I was like, this is powerful stuff. If you can forgive, I mean, the weight on your shoulders just disappears. And it's so helpful. It's so healthy. When it comes to teaching children, nothing's better than actions and doing it over and over again. And I've found it's easier to say I apologize than it is to say I'm sorry. I don't know why, but for me, it is. And so I teach them, like, you don't have to say you're sorry. You just need to apologize. I apologize. So what's the difference between apologizing and saying sorry? There's not any difference. I just don't know why it's easier for me. I think ultimately the outcome is the same. It's just, I even feel like it's even more sincere when you say I apologize. Sorry sometimes just feels like, I know you want to hear it, so I'll say it. Right. And it's not as meaningful. And maybe that's why it's harder to say it because you don't truly believe it. Hmm. But one of the things I'll do, this is a nugget. Okay. I think this is what my dad did for us. And I did this one time long time ago in front of a teacher in college. And she said, I think you have one of the best fathers I've ever heard of. Here's what it was. When your kids are fighting, because kids fight, and you say, oh, all right, that's it. You guys are both in real big trouble. You need to stand face to face, look each other in the eyes, and you are not allowed to laugh. Do not laugh. And I mean, no matter what issue they were having, they're cracking up within five seconds. And then you got to act serious. I said, don't laugh. And they're laughing. And then you say, okay, look, if you're going to laugh, you guys are obviously your friends again. Like you have to say something that you love about each other. Mm-hmm. And then you know what? Almost without exception, the fight is over and they're off playing together. It is one of the best tools I use to mitigate that kind of stuff. I do it as often as I need to. I mean, it's one of the very first things I go to. And I've added, I forgive you. Now you have to say, I forgive you at the end. And I say it all the time when they tell me they hate me or they hit me or whatever, you know, that stuff happens every now and then. Like, hey, look, I forgive you for saying that when you were upset, when you were tired. Like it's that repetition, having a little fun with it too, but apologizing and forgiving as part of the same conversation is super powerful. And what's really special is when you see your kids do it to each other over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dude, I love it. That's a huge nugget. The face to face, don't laugh. 
make it fun versus I could find myself when they're arguing. I'm just like from the other room. I'm like, God dang, kids are like at it again. And then I'm pissed. And then I go in. I'm like, what the heck? This is ridiculous. Stop. You're fighting over whatever. My dad used to go like, you guys would fight over a booger to me and my brother. Cause we, you know, whatever we fight all the time. <laughs> and so thinking about going in and again, that comes back to this feeling I have that you are just really grounded in your role as a dad. And I think both dads are inside of us. It's just, which one am I going to go walk out of my room and choose to be? And so dads know that you have the power, the ability it's in you to show up with the, all right, kids, you're going to face each other and don't laugh and come in with that mode versus they're like, God dang, you're, it's almost like it's because they're causing you to stop doing whatever you're doing and you're making whatever you're doing more important than the fact that this is an opportunity for you to parent them. So keeping that mindset. All right. I love it. Apologize, but also forgive quickly. I also love the nuggets about sorry versus I apologize. And then also I forgive you. I mean, this is stuff that anybody can do, right? It's just being aware. All right. Any last thoughts? Yeah. You have to normalize that. It's hard to do if you don't do it often. It's got, yes. you know, when you tell your daughter, you love her and you're going to bed, it's like, it rolls right off the tongue. If you do the yeah. apologize and forgiveness thing enough, it becomes normal. And that's what makes decent humans. Yeah, just normalize it. All in all, being present is always the number one thing. Be there with your child if you can and as much as you can. If you're there, that yeah. puts you in the top echelon of the fatherhood figures that kids want. Yes, if you're there. But I don't want to give guys the out to go just because in our society, if the dad's at the baseball game, he's made it. If your face is buried in your phone or you're not engaged, you're not there. And same, I mean, you just kind of let us know. In the morning, you're there with your kids engaged. And then in the evening, you're like, yeah, it allows me to get home later and do those after you know work calls, whatever. But then you're like, I also spend an hour putting my kids to bed. Like I have this routine. And so I think there's a difference between being there and being present. Yeah. And you are present at those two critical components for your kids, especially with young kids is the morning and the evening. So dude, ah, so good. All right, Everett, my last question is a legacy question. All right, imagine 30 years from now, 30 years, let's say 40 years from now, because your son will be 40 years old. He'll be where you're at. Imagine 40 years from now, you're in your 80s now, and you're looking at your kids to where you are now. What is it that you hope to see? And you know that your day in, day out decisions, actions, morning routine, bedtime routine played into those human beings that they are. I mean, the single thing I could hope for is that they have families that are together that have stayed together. Mm -hmm. They are still married to whoever they had children with, if they've had children, but I would assume that they would, and that they want to spend time, not just with their own immediate family, but their brothers and sisters. And of course, my wife and I, I think that the desire to enjoy time together would be like, made it, made it, life is done. Like my kids mm -hmm. have started their own beautiful families. They've stayed together and they want to hang out. And I think that when you're 80, <laughs> I mean, life is different. You can see the people that are 80, like yeah. their friends may not even be alive anymore. And yeah. there's yeah. not much you do outside of family. Mm. You know, your first 20 years is all family. And then you get mm. busy and then it, the family disperses a little bit as people go start their own. But then it like almost comes right back to all family as you get older. And you got to make sure you maintain those relationships and nurture yes. those relationships through those middle age years, the 20 to the 60 years, 
20 to 60 years old because at the end, it does come back to family. I just know that the odds of having a better relationship with kids improves the more kids you have, I think. There you go. That's what I hope for. Everett, bro, so good. I mean, the intentionality, the love, the honesty, the vulnerability, the I don't have it all figured out approach, but really engaging, being present with your kids. Keep being the business leader, the husband, the father that you are. I just know you're raising four amazing kids. Really, as us dads collectively talk about fatherhood, this matters because my kids could marry your kids. And so how I show up, how you show up for our families really matters well beyond our lives. So thank you for the work that you're doing in your home, bro. It goes a long way. And uh, I just appreciate you taking the time to talk about fatherhood with me today. Hey, you know what, Ned? Like I said earlier, I can only hope to become the father you've become. I mean, you've been Mm -hmm. doing such great work, sharing your message, getting other dads on the program, writing books. It's been fun to follow, man. And I appreciate and admire everything that you do as well. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. Thank you for the support. And I look forward to connecting with you again in the future. Me too. My friends, there we go. Another incredible conversation. Super grateful for that. You know, one of the things that really stuck out to me that I've been implementing since our conversation is really paying attention to when I say sorry and when I apologize and really noticing the difference. Sometimes we'll just kind of use sorry for I just want to move past this. I don't really care, but I just want to move past this moment versus let me apologize for the way that I acted. And actually last night, I had a situation where I got frustrated at my daughter in the kitchen when she was supposed to be cleaning the dishes. And and I raised my voice and she says, dad, why are you yelling at me? And I paused and the moment just kind of ended and we were both there and finished our stuff. I was laying in bed, trying to fall asleep. And I just had this weight like, ah, dude, go make this fully right. Not just how you made it in the kitchen. So I went to her room and I just said, hey, I I love you so much. Thank you for trusting that you could say, dad, why are you yelling? And I had a real apology and we made a great connection and we ended the day laughing and enjoying a few minutes just talking in her room before she went to bed. So thank you, Everett, for that. Men, we must know who we are as fathers. The world would look and feel different if men showed up in their identity to love, serve, guide, provide, and protect. And this is why I launched Adventure of Fatherhood. Make sure to check it out, adventurefatherhood.com. You can get the kids book right now. We have the father-son one, a great way to see who you are and connect with your child. Soon we'll have a father-daughter book. You could also go order a new gift box with the children's book in it to welcome a new father into his role. And then soon, very soon, Coming in a few weeks, we are going to have some introduction to fatherhood, field trips, courses on that site, which can help you discover more deeply your powerful fatherhood role. Again, that's adventureoffatherhood.com. All right. Thank you to all you dads out there listening to Rebel and Creates Fatherhood Field Notes podcast. What you do matters. Don't be like everybody else. Be yourself. That is who your kids, spouse, and community needs. This is your guide, Ned. Shout together. Let's rebel against the view that fatherhood has little impact and create lives engaged in mastering the craft of fatherhood. I look forward to hanging out with you next time.